0: Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. So who do we have on the show today, Sherry?
1: Natalie Samarco, second-year MBA student, will be joining us to tell about her experiences living abroad in China, a tricky trip to North Korea, and her rocky journey to learning one of the world's most difficult languages.
0: Natalie also happens to be a terrific storyteller. She's an example of the diversity of experience that is a hallmark of the Stern community. Natalie exemplifies not judging a book by its cover.
1: We also want to make a quick announcement before we get into the episode. This interview includes a story about trip to North Korea, but it was taped last spring prior to the summer's events. Since then, unfortunately, the situation with North Korea has only become more serious, precarious, and relevant. We want our listeners to understand these stories within the context of current events, and we welcome comments and questions through our email, sternchats at gmail.com.
0: Thanks, Sherry. And I think we should jump right in because Natalie is a great guest. But before we do, I want to say, if you've got a great story, or you know somebody that's got a great story, give us an email at sternchats at gmail.com. Also, if you want to see pictures of Natalie or some great behind-the-scenes photos, check out our Instagram at SternChats. One word.
1: Okay, let's do it, Frank. Yeah, let's
0: do it. Cue that music.
1: From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Ferricchio and Sherry Holt.
0: Hey, listeners, we are so excited to have our classmate, Natalie Samarco, here with us. Natalie, thank you so much for coming.
2: It's uh, really great to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You are welcome. For people that have never met you, because we're obviously very familiar, what would be like a 20-second intro for a radio audience?
2: Okay, 20 seconds. Um, Hi, my name is Natalie. I am uh, an MBA student at Stern. Uh, I'm from Ohio, from Cincinnati, Ohio. I went to undergrad in Vermont, where I started studying Mandarin Chinese. Chinese. I lived in China for many years. I ended up doing my master's at a Chinese university in Nanjing, and I ended up working for many years in Shanghai. To pivot in my career, I am now at Stern doing my MBA.
0: Sherry, when when I think of Natalie, it's really hard to think of her without China being the next thing that pops into your brain right away.
1: I, absolutely. I mean, every time I chat with Renee and Roger, my parents, who know <laughs> and love Natalie, China always comes up. And it's it's so interesting because, you know, Talk about not judging a book by its cover. If you just met you, you would not know that you are a fluent Chinese speaker who spent nearly a decade yeah. in Asia.
2: Yeah, I. Um, that's part of the love of it for me. Growing up in Ohio, um, it's a little more homogeneous. Uh, I actually think back about in my childhood and think about who I came in contact with. My parents were rather international for for what they were. When well her, were they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. they Aliens. They, they kind of, well, I guess I know what I mean is there are a lot of people in Ohio who live in Ohio, grow up in Ohio. People live there, they grow up there, they stay there. They're friends with their high school friends until they're fifty or sixty and have grandchildren, and it all goes down the line. They and There's nothing wrong with place. that. Oh, totally by the way. not. Totally not. It's one of the reasons that I'm really proud to have grown up in Ohio. Is there's this this core of awesomeness, this core of people that are there and who I really look forward to going back to and seeing. But my parents were not, I guess they're not really that type. My mom is from Northern Kentucky and then moved to Ohio as a nurse, met my father, but my father's from New Jersey. And he brought in this different sort of mindset, I guess. He was an opera singer as a kid and traveled around the country on a bus singing with the American Boy Choir. He was the one who pushed us out to go to college out of state to travel to go to Europe to just get to know different things, and I really thank him for that. So getting back to the main point is, I love Ohio. It's rather homogeneous, but- Great sports. <laughs> but for me, yes, great sports. Go Bengals, go Reds, what up? <laughs> <laughs> when I was young, I remember we had German au pairs, like, who would come. They were studying, but they would also babysit us quite a bit. And then we had uh, Fen, who was a Chinese woman, who would babysit us. And then- For most of my life, we had a a housekeeper named Mare who was Iranian, and she was my second mother. So it was very, very international in our household, and I think that was kind of the basis for me wanting to go out and and see a little more of the world. Did your parents
1: bring in these international women thoughtfully? Like, do do they actually think about exposing you all to different cultures?
2: Or was it just the luck of the draw? I think so. I, uh, I'm i the last of five children. And I think initially it was, wow, we need help. <laughs> There's so many people around. There's so many kids around. And uh, and I think it was intentional on, on one hand or the other hand. They also really liked getting to know different cultures and having them bring their food in or their customs in and letting us get to hear them speak their their own language and just kind of expose us to that. My father was very conscious of the fact that he moved to Ohio, lived there for many, many years, decades and decades. It wasn't supposed to be a bubble ever for us. He wanted us to go out and he suggested, please don't, you gotta get out of the state for for school. Go find something fun, go find something cool. I don't care what it is, but do it well. So that was his mindset. And so I ended up going to school in Vermont. Because it was far away, it was cold. I am. A <laughs> I love the cold weather. I'm not a hot weather person. You're such a weirdo. I know. I know. Everyone <laughs> like says that. Person. I am not a beach person. I'm more like a cold city. Bundle up. Go find some adventure yeah, instead well, of. Yeah, follow your heart. The you yeah. know,
1: she does look particularly fabulous in the winter when she <laughs> comes in in her huge fur coat. I I'll, I love it so much. she
0: got some excellent winter. Yeah, I now,
1: can maybe. always spot Natalie from across the lobby in the in the main. Um, KMC lobby of NYU Stern. She's yeah. just good
0: at it. Yeah. Winter, you've got it. You got it nailed down.
1: Bright red hair, big black <laughs> fur coat. I love
2: it. I love uh, <laughs> my summer apparel. I think needs a little work, but uh, <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. I guess Stern Stern's a place where we work on all facets of our lives.
0: <laughs> so I mean, so you're from Ohio, and right. even though Ohio is the Rome of the Midwest.
2: Uh, yes, the gateway to the West, The if gateway you will. to the West. Yes. You,
0: you knew, you said, there's, there's more out there. My parents have given me this great international perspective. Right. It seems like your incredible background in international travel, international living uh, has brought you on some crazy adventures.
2: Uh, it's been a little crazy. Um, <laughs> we try to keep our sense of humor with it, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> One of the stories that stands out the most about you over in Asia mm-hmm. is that you actually visited North Korea. Oh, yeah, which is right now one of the most relevant situations going on in the world because u s. and North Korea are are engaged in a very serious situation. And also a very small percentage of Americans have ever gotten to see what North Korea looks like.
2: Can right. you tell us that story? Sure, Sure. Going to North Korea was one of the most impactful trips of my life for sure. I had heard about going to North Korea maybe, A couple years beforehand in 2010 when I was doing um, some graduate work in China and I was like wow that's pretty cool. I've never heard of anyone going to North Korea and so when I went to finish up my master's I was like I want to go and a friend of mine one of my best friends Laura also wanted to go and so she and I planned a trip and uh, you can do it you can only do it through a tour agency. We thought about where we wanted to go and everything, and and we were planning the trip in spring, and we thought about why we wanted to go. And for me, a lot of the things I do or a lot of things I did in China was they're guided by this notion that I just want to see. I just want to go and see how it is. I hear a lot about North Korea. It's almost almost like, don't tell me what to think about North Korea. I just want to go and see it for myself and then make my own judgment about it. That was super important to me so we planned this trip um, for 10 people, and we got everything ready. The day that we had solidified everything, sent off all the money for the trip, it was uh, March 8th, 2013. And that was the day that I'll never forget, because that's the day that the UN laid down massive sanctions on North Korea. And North Korea was having a reaction to that. and Not <laughs> but,
0: a positive one.
2: No. the The news came out— and they were being hostile. North Korea was being hostile to the rest of the world. They were very upset about the sanctions. It was almost like we'd sent off the mail. You dropped, it's almost like the figuratively, you dropped the envelope in the mailbox, and then you're like, oh, no. Let <laughs> I me mean, get out. And you, so you're like, you know, shoulder deep into the mailbox yeah, feet, trying yeah. to fish out this letter. You're rethinking this trip <laughs> yeah, at this point. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the tour agency was like, nope, you uh, applied. And now we've applied for you. It's in the works. You're welcome. You know, hope you... <laughs>
1: See you there. Hope you have
2: a better attitude, (laughs) you know, when you go in a month. And uh, originally it was 10 people. Uh, One of the professors from our school in China, a a wonderful guy named uh, Professor Arase, David Arase, he also wanted to be a participant on the trip that we planned. Originally it was 10 people. Um, Tensions were heightened very much in North Korea. And actually the day before the trip, three people dropped out for for personal reasons. Don't blame them. Yeah. um, I mean, Sherry, would you drop? You would have dropped right out. I would have dropped out.
1: I would certainly (laughs) have dropped out. Let's be real. There's no way you would have went to North Korea. There's no way. Hey,
0: don't feel bad. I'm not going to North Korea. (laughs) You know what I mean? at, At home, I got a puppy, pizza, Netflix. (laughs) <laughs> no danger. Like, that's that's my kind of Saturday.
2: I love the puppy. The puppy's so cute. For some reason, I, I had this tentative confidence. I was like, it's going to be okay. When I think about going to North Korea and the weeks beforehand, we, Laura and I, held a, a pre-departure meeting with everybody, and we were like, hey, um, just so you know, we're setting the tone of this trip as being very exploratory. Uh, we're there to learn. We are not there at all to... Pass out Bibles. Take any souvenirs that we did not that were not authorized to take pictures in places that we're not supposed to take pictures. We want to be in, learn as much as we can, and then get out. But I just want to see it. I just want to see what it looks like to be in North Korea. I want to see the people. I want to see the things that the pictures don't show on on you know the news websites. And everyone kind of agreed. We were like, no, we are not. We're not going to go in and try to try to do something funny that would make us be detained in no, any way. No
0: tomfoolery. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's... Of all the places
0: to have tomfoolery, North Korea would not yeah. be the time.
2: And so we we went and it was an amazing experience. And What it, was amazing about that? We were in there and we got to choose where we wanted to go. So they gave us a list of approved sites and of course we wanted to see like the workers monument and the schoolhouse um, and their, they want to showcase all of their technology so in the big people's library They have um, eight computers that can get on the Internet. No, I think it's five computers. Wait, that's it? Yes, five computers that can only access eight websites. And they have um, their music room, which just had maybe, I don't know, 120, 150 desks in it. But it was called the music room because you were allowed to listen to music. And the way that people listened to music was they had a big, like, 1996 boombox on every desk that you could put your CDs and cassette tapes in. And you could put your headphones in and listen to these things. And they're like, this is the music room. And I was like, I've never seen so many 1990s boomboxes in one yeah. place. <laughs> You're
0: like, shouldn't that be on someone's shoulder? <laughs>
2: exactly. And it was, it was awesome. We also went to a um, U.S. war crimes museum.
0: That must have been yeah. fascinating.
2: Yeah. Most of the artifacts were, they were not actual photographs. They were paintings made of the atrocities that the U.S. had committed, I guess, in the area during the Korean War um, between 1950 and 1953. So a lot
0: of interpretation. Uh,
2: Yeah, yeah, I would say it was... Propaganda? (laughs) Yeah. I think it was very propagandized, and um, we asked the tour guide, who is very emphatic when she was going through her spiel, so to speak, and talking about, um, and this is what the American aggressors do, and they they talk about the American aggressors. That's like a direct quote that they use. And then they talk about the South Korean puppets, which is also a quote that they try to use quite often as much as possible in their media. So she's like, the American aggressors made the South Korean puppets, you know, and went on with the story. And she's so emphatic, and she's talking so much about these terrible, terrible things that we've done in our history, in our past. And then afterwards, she was like, hey, how are you doing? Did you like the tour? Uh-huh. And and we That's asked her. So weird. We asked her. so bizarre. Because she was so emphatic about things like, and this is the schoolhouse and you can see the hole in the roof where all of the American soldiers put the wives and children of our highest yielding farmers and burn them to a crisp. Afterward, we were like, so you speak a lot about Americans. You do know that we're Americans, right? And she was like, yeah. And when we asked her, you know that we're Americans, right? Do you think that we do this? Do you associate the things that you were talking about directly with us? And she said, no, not really. No. I mean, you're you're on a tour, like so. Why would you? No, obviously not. The
0: compartmentalization not. there is yeah pretty significant, but also the learned intensity of the rhetoric.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. And I think her job to be a tour guide was very special in this in this museum, and it was in a very small and very remote area, not very well populated, farming and farmers all around her. So this job was very special, and I I don't think. Great jobs are very numerous in North Korea. So when you get this job, you're like, "Yes, I'm going to do whatever it is to keep this job because I also need to feed my family."
0: You know, it must be it must have been a strange experience because all of us on the show right now, Sherry and Natalie, we're all Americans. We we love America. Is that fair to say, ladies? Yes. Oh, I love America. I do. Isn't <laughs> well, America just so much. great? <laughs> we we just love America so much. And I'm I'm sure when you are on that tour, it must have made you feel kind of uncomfortable. To receive uh, a full force propaganda tour.
2: We were very fortunate to go on this trip with people who were like, we're going into a very interesting, we're going into a very interesting country, that hates us to the core. The government hates our nation, our people, our values, everything to the core, and we're th- we're just there to learn. War is an interesting thing. It brings out um, sometimes the best in people and sometimes the worst in people but they also have an agenda that they want to come across as well. And I don't think North Korea is a country that allows any inkling of having that discussion about whether it was possibly a different
0: way. Yeah, there's no gray. There's yeah. no way to see these incidents right, right, separately. Right.
1: Well, the information, the flow of information is so stifled that yeah. perhaps she didn't know anything different.
2: So my big takeaway from the trip was that the government of North Korea is way different from the people who are there. And the people I met, one short anecdote, I guess, is um, we made good friends with our tour, tour guides. They were uh, both women. And we made friends with them in a way, in an earnest way. I think it was truly earnest, where we wanted to know about them and their families. And what makes you think that... Like, what makes you go into this job as a tour guide? Um, What makes you want to pursue this as a career? How did you learn this? How do you learn about the West? Why do you know what Starbucks is, especially when it's so close-bordered, and they get a lot of their information from us, and we talk to us all the time? I fully believe that the smartest people in North Korea, they go into the tourism business because they have so much access to foreigners. It's definitely, like, I'm totally a full believer of that. But in an earnest way, we made friends with our tour guides, and we were permitted to walk down a street, um, which was actually quite a big thing. They don't let you walk around. You are in the bus in location A. You go to location B, get out, walk in the places they want you to walk, get in the bus again. And so we were permitted to walk down a street in a small town, and we were permitted also to watch some of the practice and rehearsals for their their national day, which is uh, Kim Il-sung's birthday. Uh, in mid-April we go and we were watching the rehearsals of the little kids banging their drums and doing their dances and then some of the adults came in and did their dances as well and singing and I I was down and kneeling on the ground to kind of not draw attention to myself you know how sometimes you can tell when people are looking at you oh yeah (laughs) and so I'm looking straight ahead and you know in a little bit of the periphery I'm like I feel like someone is looking at me and so I'm looking, and I don't turn my head. I just kind of take a casual glance to the side, and I'll bet there were probably 15 or 16 small school children just staring at me, just staring at me. And it, I'm a full believer that in moments like that, you have a choice to either... You can either look ahead and ignore them, or you can be an ambassador of your country, smile and wave. And they've never seen a foreigner before. And, you know, I have long red hair, I have fair skin, and they obviously had never seen anyone that looks like me, and they obviously had been told many, many terrible things about the U.S. and, and about the foreign countries because that's kind of indoctrinated in North Korean culture at this point. And I smiled and I waved, and they were kind of in disbelief. Maybe a couple smiled and were kind of like, you know, giggly and, you know, just as school children are. I'll bet they were probably eight years old or so. I was like, oh my goodness, this is, this is an incredible opportunity. Not to do anything, but just kind of take it in and realize that this is something that even people who go on tours in North Korea don't really get to experience. That's something that I will never forget. That when you're in a foreign country and you're you're around people that have never seen anyone who looks like you, they've heard stories about maybe what you're like, you have a responsibility to be a good ambassador for what you represent.
0: It sounds like you had some positive experiences yeah. uh, actually on that tour, but were there any were there any parts of that tour that made you very uncomfortable, scared, or were just takeaways that worried you about that situation?
2: The entire trip was basically guided by this notion of heightened anxiety. Because this heightened anxiety came from the fact that we're dealing with a very big unknown that does things for unreasonable intentions and reasons. So we were anxious.
0: You know, I would say this next chapter, Sherry, I I feel, begins something that sounds like Natalie's adventures in China.
2: Yeah. Oh, God.
0: How did you land on China? Because, I'm sorry, it's what, 10 years? Right?
2: Yeah, I started studying Mandarin in 2005.
0: 2005. How did you land on that? Because I know that you had all these au pairs and this international perspective, but I I just don't see a big Chinese influence. And now it's a big part of your life.
2: Yeah, I, I went to Middlebury College. They are known for their languages. I actually didn't know that when I applied or when I arrived on campus. Um, but I landed on Chinese for a couple reasons. So when I'm matriculated into Middlebury, it's four years of college. It's a liberal arts school, very tiny. They actually have a program called the FEB program, where you graduate in June from high school, but they don't actually allow you to matriculate in the fall. They don't allow you to enter in September. They say, they take like one quarter of their freshman class, say, go do something fun for that first semester. You can come in February. And so we actually start our four years of undergraduate from like February and then actually graduate in February. It's kind of cool. The Feb class, actually, because we graduate in February in Vermont and Middlebury owns a ski mountain, we ski down the mountain to get our diplomas. What a Vermont thing to do. That is so neat. And then there is there like a bucket of maple syrup at the end? Oh my goodness. Yeah, there's a bucket of champagne.
0: (laughs) And does your dean snowshoe over to you?
2: (laughs) It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. So uh, I ended up taking that first semester. I went abroad to Scotland, and they they speak English, one would think, in Scotland. Sure. <laughs> um, a little hard to understand for me, but I'd never lived anywhere before, anywhere other than Ohio. And so when I went to Scotland, I was, like, kind of hooked. I was like, wow, this is amazing that I'm here, I'm meeting new people, I'm seeing new people, and I want to do this again, only next time I want to do it learning um already having learned a language and functioning in that and studying in that language and so when I went back to Middlebury I was focused on like econ in Italian because I'm a little have some heritage um, from Italy and Sicily and I was like that's gonna be it and then I got to campus and I realized Middlebury has this language requirement because they're a liberal arts school Chinese and Mandarin is the language that they actually are really known for and I was like uh you know whatever they have this language requirement I'd I'll take it for the semester for my language requirement, get done with it, and then get the experience. It's oh, you thought of,
0: this was going to be a short time situation. Yeah,
2: yeah. Actually, it's kind of the mindset I took when I, um, when I took corporate finance this semester with DeMotorin. I was like, well, Stern is now, and DeMotorin's really well-known. I might as well take this class. Yeah. <laughs> um, Although I don't see my future being in corporate finance, let's be real. But
1: <laughs> I don't know. But like, we're going to check in with Natalie 10 years from now. She's going to be a f- corporate finance <laughs> yeah. whiz. You
2: never know. Financia. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I took it that first semester, and it was really unlike anything I'd ever started before. I took Latin for eight years, Greek for a couple years, did Ancient Greek and all the AP classes in, the, in these classical languages. Chinese is not like that, it's not a romance language. You can't look at Chinese and say, oh, that connects to this word in my own language, so I kind of know what it means.
0: You're starting from zero. Yeah, I was starting from zero. Sherry and I actually have known you through this program, Mm -hmm. and I assume, because you're you're (coughs) so intelligent at a lot of the things that you do, that you probably picked it up right away, and you were great at it, and then your career took off. Is that, is that, have I nailed that?
2: No, well... No, <laughs> you uh, you couldn't have been more wrong. Actually, I.
0: That's weird because I am not wrong about anything.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, you know <laughs> you're a man of conviction. I like that. You're right in your own mind. So counts. <laughs> so so what happened? So that first semester was kind of a. Took. Qualify it as a disaster would be kind. I think <laughs> I think I was walking into a situation I had no idea, no idea how to start this language. We had eight classes a week for that first semester, or that first year, I should say. How do you have eight classes a week? Twice a day? Um, yeah, so three days a week we had, we were with the big group, which I think about 15 students quit after that first class, and so maybe about like 50 students In that big class, and then the medium class was maybe, like, 20, and then you have drill, which is just you—it's five students and a teacher, and they just drill you on tones. Tones and words and making conversation. And then we had two mandatory language table lunches where we could only speak Chinese during that lunch. So Must (laughs) have been a really silent table. It uh, was—in the (laughs) beginning, it was great. I was like, (laughs) I'm— I'm here for the food. (laughs) I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. But after that first class, I was like, wow, this is not for me. This was a mistake. I'm going to truck on with Italian and make my grandmother, Pasqualina, um, very happy uh, to learn Italian. And um, I was on my way to the registrar's office, and I was like, yeah, I'm out of here. The weather's nice. Vermont. It's about to be fall. It's great. And uh, I was, like, right outside the door of the registrar's office, and I was like, you know, what if I just go one more day? It was just the first day. I might as well just stay for one more class. You know, that would be fine, right? One more class won't hurt. And that was 12 years ago. So what was some of the feedback
1: that you were getting from your professors as you went on this really painful journey?
2: Um, what's What's really interesting is the first thing that was said by, by – um, by a few professors in the beginning was, you know, there are sixty-six people in this classroom. I don't want to see sixty-six people in this classroom tomorrow. I was taken aback. I was like, "Holy cow! This is the mo- this is premier Mandarin school in the country, and you don't want us here." And the eventual goal was of him saying that was, "We don't want you here unless you're here for for the long haul." And of the sixty-six people who started, um, only fourteen actually went through the whole program. I was one of the fourteen. And um, it was almost that first year they tried to weed out everybody. I think at the end of the first semester, first day of class, 15 people quit. End of first semester, maybe we were down to maybe 40. And then just the years trickled on and people were like, this is too much trouble for me.
0: At some point, do you feel like you got selected for being weeded out? Like, you couldn't uh, yeah. have been the favorite.
2: I was so bad. I was so bad. At one point in the first semester, I was taken aside by a professor, and it was before the Thanksgiving exam. So um, we started school, what, September? Sure. Like, in September, and then before Thanksgiving, someone had taken me aside. We talked for two hours. That was like, you know, Natalie, like, I know talent when I see it. And I was like... Yeah, I know it's it's been a little crazy lately. He was like, "No, I know talent when I see it." And you're like, "Good." Yeah, I yeah. was like, "Good, good." Yeah, you know. All right, he we believes focus, in me. To Marco. I got it. I know talent when I see it, and um, and you don't have it. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I, that um, is
1: so soul crushing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and he was like, "So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna get you through the semester." We're going to get you the help you need, and then we're going to—so we're going to find something else for you in the spring that is hopefully not language. And I came out of this meeting with a couple different thoughts. First, I have this sort of—I think a lot of people do at that age, at age 19 or 20, and they're like, you can't tell me what to do. (laughs) And then the other is, oh, my God, am I really, like, over my— over myself here? Am I, am I overstretched, am I overextended? And I went with my first gut reaction, which was, you don't tell me when I quit. <laughs> I, I tell it. me when to quit. You just turned into an action yeah. star for exactly. some reason.
0: <laughs> so,
2: and um, year after year, after studying after studying, I was like, that's where it comes into play, where it was that dual thought, am I too stubborn for this? These teachers don't believe in me. They don't think I can do it. They just kind of are like, "Yep, Natalie. Yep, another grade like that. She's so cute." <laughs> <laughs> you do you, little one. <laughs> we'll just celebrate when you quit. It was a really proud moment for me because man, there were so many there were so many moments when I wanted to quit.
0: <laughs> when you when you were learning Mandarin sure. and you were really it sounds like fueling a lot of this on your young stubbornness (laughs) and desire to succeed and prove people wrong, when you were using that as your fuel, did you know that Mandarin was going to become a huge part of your future, both personally and in business?
2: Um, I didn't. I didn't know at all. Um, I guess the third part that plays into my choosing Mandarin is like this huge luck or fortunate factor. Um, I was fortunate enough to choose a language in a country that was becoming quite, quite big, I guess, and a lot of people who start Mandarin today, they have these this thought, I want to go and do this in China. China's big. China's blowing up. I want this to happen. I want to go in. I want to learn Mandarin. And for me, it was like, well, there's a language requirement, and you do this well. So I might as well. Okay. He,
0: he just stumbled into yeah. it. Yeah.
2: And. and what really fueled the the continuation of it was the financial crisis. Mm. I noted before that I graduated and I started in February and then I graduated in February. So I started in February 5, graduated January 09, which was a little bit of a tough time to find a job in the US. I was I was rejected from the container store. I just wasn't passionate enough about closets, they told me. Wow, yeah, yeah. Tupperware. Yeah, Tupperware designing closets, believe me, I have passions for a lot of things but
0: well this might be a good opportunity since this you know this podcast is in 20 countries now and it's yeah. got a pretty good viewership if you work at the container store you really missed out yeah, yeah exactly. you missed out yeah. on a quality employee
1: yeah exactly so um tell us a little bit about your your first job in china and moving
2: there and what was that oh, yeah. what was that like I studied in China many years before I actually started working there. So my first job in China was actually working in investment immigration in Shanghai, and uh, that job was really great. It allowed me the amazing opportunity to continue studying Mandarin because I was learning a whole different subject. Uh, my job was in Chinese. I was giving presentations on investment opportunities in New York to Chinese investors to see if they want to invest in them, and I traveled so much. I traveled quite a bit during those years.
1: So, basically, you are traveling around Shanghai, trying to find investors. So, you are speaking a language. You're, you're basically a saleswoman in a <laughs> yeah. different language. So, it's not even as if you need to know sort of the basic vocabulary. You need to be charming. And emphatic, in, Ch- yeah. in Chinese. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other level of fluency. Where did you start... of learning those skills?
2: Well, I, I was traveling, actually, not just in Shanghai, but I was traveling all around the country, which was awesome. Very, very cool to be able to do that. But I learned a lot from people around me. I learned a lot from, I guess, the entire process of learning Chinese, of how to act and how to be with someone and engage them in a different culture and know when and where and what type of mannerisms to use. And in China what I, what I love about Chinese people is they're, they're very, very warm. And when you are their friend, there's, they have no qualms about touching your hand or holding your hand or no qualms about, um, offering to solve your problem for you. If I said, oh, this is terrible, man, I need to move my couch today. And they're like, I'll move your couch with you. And I'm like, you don't have anything to do today. And they're like, Whatever. I'm gonna, spend, I'm gonna spend three hours moving your couch with you across town. And That's I'm, so
0: funny because no. uh, Sherry just moved recently, and she asked me if I would help her move, and I said absolutely not. Oh, Frank! I said absolutely, I will not. So yeah. it, it sounds like like Chinese people are so uh, friendly that they, they they even have me beat. I mean, I'm and I'm your friend. Yeah. <laughs> Friend.
2: Well, I I had a coworker, Teen uh, May. She was amazing. Uh, I called her May uh, May, and May May is a play on words because May May means little sister, and because May was a part of her name, I called her May May. I would ask her questions about language. I would ask her about the presentation that I just did, and the best part about May uh, May was that she was very honest, and she said, "Well, when you use this word." it's a little how do you say offensive so <laughs> so phrasing it this way would be better and so time after time we traveled quite a bit together she would kind of get me up to speed on the things especially in the beginning because although i had practical and theoretical language training it was it's different when you're in that person-to-person setting, I guess, in a professional context instead of the social context.
0: Sure. She helped you kind of sharpen your sword, right? Yeah,
2: oh, she yeah. Kind of like... And I I love her. Yeah, I still talk to her. She's great.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, can you give us an example? Like, you given a pitch. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, I'm sure you weren't perfect. Like, what are some of the, like, pratfalls that you had?
2: Uh, <laughs> so so the, the interesting thing was we um, were hired as a team of... There were only three people working in China when I started, which is great. Uh, we were all relatively young, relatively new to the industry. And uh, Mei Mei was Chinese, Charlie was from Chicago, and then I'm, I'm from the US too. We all, uh, Charlie and I spoke Chinese, and uh, Mei Mei, obviously, spoke Chinese. And we were trained in a way to be a one-person army, to go and to give these pitches and whatnot. And because we wanted, they wanted us to kind of go around and do this by ourselves, travel to this place, give support, train the local staff, meet with investors, wash, rinse, repeat. And uh, so I had been in the job maybe three weeks, I would say, and uh, studying like crazy to get, to get my language up. And the names of our projects sound like the names that they do in English. Um, we had a George Washington Bridge redevelopment project, and the name of that project is Washington Dun. Washington, Washington is Washington. Right? So I walk into this one meeting, and I'm supposed to be this one person army and try to do it all. And I have my pitch and I have whatever, and I'm not confident at all. And I walk in there, I get up in front of maybe 50 people, and I was like, My name's Natalie, Washington Bridge Project. <laughs> Hashtag K bye. And that was the only thing I said. I said the name of the project. They're like, What? <laughs> and, they were, and I just tanked. Face planted, and it was, and... Um, How loud were
0: those crickets in <laughs> Oh,
2: it was bad, it was so bad, it was so bad, and um, it, I just wasn't ready, and I took a lot away from that. I, I took a lot away from that. The local staff jumped in, they described the project, and they, they kind of did it for me, and it's hard because you want to turn around and be like, it's because I've never done this before. It's because I'm, I'm the new person. I just started a couple weeks ago, and they don't care. Yeah, they don't care at all, and that's totally fine. They shouldn't care. You know, I was sent there as a representative to do the job, and I just didn't, it didn't work out well. It really got my, like, bucket and gear to just focus on it and be like, I this is my job. This is what I'm hired for. I don't care if it's two and a half weeks in. Now we have to up the language training and just do it in front of everybody. Do it in front of the mirror. Do it in front of my roommate. Do it in front of Maymay. like And have yet Charlie, again,
0: you face adversity, and what does Natalie do? Tighten up. Yeah. Well, you know it's, I mean? it's
2: the stubbornness, right? I think...
0: Although you walked yeah. into that pitch, and what it sounds like in the story is that uh, you said nothing in Chinese. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I mean.
0: And then just uh, immediately exited stage left. <laughs>
2: well, I, yeah, that was, that was it. I was like, uh, and I remember it. I remember then it was so vivid, the name of the person who took over for me, the name of the town I was in, um, what she was wearing, how I looked, how the people looked, the the room with the red carpet and the gold chairs, and the the PowerPoint deck that was playing behind me that she didn't even use because she doesn't know how to use our deck because she's not really versed on it. She knew the, you know a little bit about the project, but wow. I, I was like, look, this needs to be sharp and, um, it was a very long process to get the pitch down in a way that was super engaging.
1: What were some of the, the the things about American culture that you had perhaps forgotten about, or some of the, the new technology like LinkedIn that you? Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, what'd you miss? Chi-
1: <laughs> what'd you miss? Well, because
0: China is not, uh, they, they don't have the same media consumption, there, right? Right. right. Uh, and you you've written about that. A little bit, actually, about right. censorship in China. Yeah. In yeah. fact, uh, you were published in the Yale Journal of International Affairs. Yeah, I was writing it was. Uh, writing about censorship. Mm-hmm. You know, so you go from that to back to America, when that you're just blasted with social media and all sorts of other stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, what was that like?
2: I uh, I love I love studying the topic of media censorship in China. There's no Google, no Insta. There's no. Um, Gosh, Facebook or Wikipedia, and New- no New York Times. I um, I worked at the U.S. consulate in Shanghai, uh, studying media censorship and and. Uh, my thesis, my master's thesis in China at Nanjing University, focused on media censorship in China. I loved talk like talking about it and researching more about it, noticing trends.
0: The Great Firewall and the Perils of Censorship in Modern China. People yes. can read it's it's online. People can read it.
2: Yeah, it is online. <laughs> it's free. That even Go that ahead. even that
0: that title. Yeah. Uh, is not a soft title. I mean, you've right. taken a position here.
2: Yes, and. The position came after um, coming from the West and having access to everything, as we all think we should have access to everything, to going to a culture where maybe some people are like, well, if that information gets into the hands of the wrong people, that could be bad, so maybe we shouldn't see it. And I was like, oh, hmm, okay. That's going to take a little bit of investigation into my own self to actually understand why it's okay that you think that. And... Uh, after studying media censorship and forming my own opinions about it, I I think that I can see it from what the government in China is trying to get at with that. Um, nobody likes rumors. Fake news is a thing that is very much timely in the U.S. today. And I think that U.S. government—I think the Chinese government— is trying to fight that fake news thing. Only the rules that they have guiding what is fake news and what is not fake news are um, very broad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they're very open for interpretation. For instance, uh, Twitter is not allowed in China, but they have um, a similar platform, which is very big, called Weibo. And Weibo is— People on Weibo can post their thoughts. They can uh, retweet, if you will, re-Weibo, I guess. <laughs> and the government had a, an issue with an artist called Ai Weiwei. Um, some people may know him in the U.S. He's actually quite famous. He designed the Bird's Nest Arena for the 2008 Olympics in China, in Beijing. And he was one of the major architects, huge activist. And so his posts on Weibo are censored heavily. Um, they're taken down right away by the force of 2 million Chinese people who are scouring the Internet to censor messages every single moment Hold
0: of on a the second. day. There's 2 million people that are censoring the Chinese Internet? Yeah, yeah. That's their job. Yeah, that's their job. Can you? We'll imagine, just let Sherry? that
1: sink in
2: for yeah, a second. I'll give
0: you a little radio silence just to absorb that. Absorbed? <laughs> Good. Please, <let's> continue. <laughs> Isn't
2: that like all the people who live in Brooklyn? <laughs> like two million yeah, people?
0: I, yeah, yeah. It's, that's, a, it's, that's a lot of people just trying to make sure you don't have access to information.
2: Right. So, um, So Ai Weiwei, this uh, activist, um, he might publish a story about something that's very sensitive, whether it's a government official who's done something that is not right or whatever. So the government made a rule where if that tweet is retweeted 300 times or more, and that tweet actually is a quote-unquote rumor, then the person who actually originally posted that tweet can be taken in and questioned and jailed. So-
0: That's that's nuts.
2: Yeah, when you think about it, um, how many people do you have following you on Instagram, or how many Facebook friends do you have? And I think I have, I don't know how many Facebook friends I have, but say like 2,000, which I, I think is quite a lot, Congratulations. If, oh, you. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm so popular, hair flip. And the, so if I post something about a news article and just 300 people say that's cool or like it or send it out to someone else, then I could be jailed for that. And I find that fascinating that that's the rule. There's such a low bar for that, such a low bar to violate something. And this is how the the Chinese government, in a way, was like— how do we control this? We, ha- we can have rules about it. So if you violate a rule, that's in violation of the rule, we're going to come get you.
0: Yeah, but that's so scary. Yeah. The idea. Well, I mean, just the idea of they can come get you, but the fact that the bar is so low mm-hmm. for someone to intervene right. is, is really, that's really frightening. Right. You can't control if people are retweeting. Another thing that pops up, Sherry, mm. is how often on our own Stern Chats Instagram have we put up jokes you know, or a figurative language. Those certainly aren't factual. Right. I I don't know if we've ever been retweeted 300 times. (laughs) What a treat. Yeah, go to Stern Chats on Instagram. Let's be
1: clear. The 300 unique downloads is factual. (laughs) That's factual.
0: That's factual. No, but I mean, um, it sounds like that kind of level of censorship means that people would be afraid to put up something creative, figurative, or funny.
2: Right. Right. And um, to add the other layer to that is uh, Weibo had also changed its rules upon recommendation of the government to have people who sign up sign up with their national ID number, and that's the equivalent of putting in your real name and your passport verification as if you were in the U.S. or your state driver's license number, and that's only to be able to register for the Weibo website so that you can have an account. So that's how they also have that added layer of knowing who you are because you have to be registered and approved as The person. You can't have like a fake account um, or your alternative personality have an account and tweet or whatever, because that's really hard to control. So they make you sign up as your person and then track you, basically. It's so interesting. The I have to talk about the language because I was a a Mandarin language teacher for a little bit, but tracking censorship through language was incredibly interesting to me because the, this force of two million people who are censoring the Internet, they, they go in, they look for keywords, they look to see what people are talking about and what movements are are happening. And if something is sensitive, then they'll, they'll, they're like, that person used that word, so they're talking about it, let's go pay attention to them. So uh, Mandarin uses characters, specific characters, and they're not words. So the characters that people learn to use will evolve. So we'll say an example of this. So Chinese government loves this idea of harmony. We want a harmonious society. Don't, don't you know, spill the water. Don't spill the milk. Let's not ruffle too many feathers so much. They talk about harmony a lot. And the word for harmony is hexieh. So harmony is a word that comes up uh, politically speaking quite a bit, and it's used on Weibo and retweeted or whatever, and some people who think it's a joke are like, oh yeah, social harmony, this, you know, this or whatever. And um, so they get dinged for it by, by the censors. But also with different characters, but sounding the exact same is the word for river crab. So some people won't use the characters that mean harmony. They'll use the characters that mean river crab, so that the censors don't know that they're actually talking about harmony. And they're like, oh yeah, blah blah blah, river crabs, blah blah blah. And then censors who end up being very intuitive and very smart, they've caught on that the characters for harmony are now being interswitched with the characters for river crab. And when they find out that River Crab is the new way to talk about this political issue, then the people on Weibo, they change the word to something else. And it just evolves and evolves and evolves. And so much of the work I was doing for my thesis for the consulate in Shanghai was reading tweets and tweets and tweets and seeing these trends about how the language was evolving to indicate these political movements that were happening is it fascinating. Oh. It's just a
1: constant game of catch up though. So that is an extra layer of difficulty for foreigners trying to even learn the language.
0: Right, right. But you know what's interesting though is that no matter what they do to try and stop certain words or expression, people's natural inclination for freedom continues.
2: Yeah, The exactly. more you try to
0: restrict it, the more people just kind of keep pushing back. And it seems like with the censorship piece mm-hmm. or even the restriction of liberties piece, that that is not the natural state that people want to exist in. Right. Which is why it sounds like there's this whole, like, guerrilla comedy yeah. that goes on on Weibo yeah. all the time.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating to watch, and it keeps me almost more and more interested in China. It's, it's that the whole country is not just a language it's this added layer of things that happen that seem pretty ridiculous to us over here in the, in the in the west we're like that's ridiculous whereas i'm like that's ridiculous i wonder why it happened <laughs> <laughs> right so yeah, but that's the what makes you different extra question why yeah so i i i like seeking that out and i had such a good time writing my my thesis and writing my my reports and everything and writing this article for for the yale journal
0: well, it's really a really great article. I, I I just want to say to our listeners, if you want to read the journal article, it's called The Great Firewall and the Perils of Censorship in Modern China by Natalie Samarco, and you can grab the PDF online yeah, or look yeah. it up in the Yale Journal of International Affairs.
1: Yeah. My my heart is full right now. You, oh. <laughs> you've given us so much to think about, and I'm wondering, is there, is there one Chinese phrase or beautiful philosophy that you can say in Chinese and tell us what it is?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, there is one. The phrase is, 舒能生巧, And it's a, there are two four-letter phrases, idioms that are put together. The first part means familiarity breeds genius. And then afterward, after the familiarity brings genius, the second part is when you have diligence when you have perseverance and endurance, you can inherit the universe. And these two phrases mean so much to me because I learned them at a very, very hard time of learning Mandarin in my career. And it was like, when, when you get familiar enough, then you can play with it. When you know a language enough, then you can make poetry. Like, that's kind of what it means. When you um, are first learning corporate finance, <laughs> it seems terrible, but when you have the basics down, then you can go play and uh, share the genius or the, the creativity that you have with it. And that's something that um, kind of leads me through, especially when I'm learning something new. Like in business school, there's so many quantitative classes that I don't know about. But when all I want to do is be familiar with it, and maybe that'll bring something out that's kind of cool. So I think about that a lot. And the second part is when you have endurance, you can inherit the universe. It seems maybe a little cliche. It seems like a really big idea, right? But I, I bring it down, down home to me when I think about when you endure, when you have this idea of, of not quitting, then what you get from that and what you learn from that is just incredibly invaluable. It's almost like running a marathon, and, and I've run uh, a few marathons. It's when you endure, when you think it stinks so much, but then you keep going, keep going, keep going, and then finish line, there's like this elation, and there are a couple races where after them, I just, you know, you break down, and it's this total um, transcendence in a way of doing something you never thought you could do. And so those are the two phrases that kind of guide the way I think of life and the way I, I get through these tough, quantitative classes at Stern and, and the, the hardships that kind of you meet when you move to a new place, or um, go through something tough, whether personally, professionally, or socially.
0: Natalie, thank you for coming in today and talking to us about all your, your crazy stories and your life experiences. I learned a lot from your perseverance. And it was great to hear about your work in studying censorship and we can't thank you enough for coming in.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's been a, a big pleasure to be here and, and you have fun, right? Have fun? I, <laughs> I had so much fun talking yeah. with you. It's So much fun talking about this. Thank you.
0: I think I think that your joint enthusiasm was your best quality as a
2: guest. <laughs> yeah. You. What do you think, Sharon? Thank you so much
1: for being here on Stern Chats.
0: Yeah. Hey, don't forget to subscribe. Oh, I am already subscribed.
1: <laughs>
2: I'll be right. sharing
1: this on everything. <laughs> Thanks, Natalie. Thank you.